Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hey, parents. You're listening to the Project Parenthood podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nanika Kaur, clinical psychologist and respectful parenting therapist. Each week, I'll introduce you to the same respectful parenting practices that I use to help parents repair and deepen connections with their children. You'll get tips for cultivating more parental self-compassion, more cooperation from your kids, and more joy, peace, and resilience in your relationship with them. In today's episode, I'm talking with Abby Hasbury a licensed marriage and family therapist associate who's both a transracial adoptee and a birth mother. You're going to hear about how to prepare your Black child for the realities of racism, how to help them process when they're personally impacted by it. Stick around till the end to learn about the importance of acknowledging the losses that are baked into any adoption story. Abby Hasbury is a therapist, author, and educator working with clients in Texas. Throughout her career, she has used her education and experiences to help others develop themselves personally and professionally. She considers herself a lifetime learner who loves learning formally through research and training and informally from her interactions with people. She's lived and traveled all over the world and loves to experience new places and cultures. In addition to being a wife and mom, she's also a transracial adoptee and a birth mom and has navigated the reunion journey for both identities. Her primary therapy specialties are adoption with focus on transracial adoptees, birth mothers, adolescents and young adults, racial identity development and racial trauma, and relationships. She's been trained in brain spotting and narrative therapy and believes that the client is the expert in their own life. After years in education as a college professor, middle school teacher, and principal, her joy is working with adolescents and young adults, but she also enjoys couples work. Abby typically works with adolescents, navigating anxiety and depression, young adults transitioning to careers and learning to adult, and adoptees of all ages discovering their identities and processing trauma. Birth moms processing post-adoption and couples seeking a more connected relationship. Her work is diversity-focused, trauma-based, and internal family systems-informed. Here's my chat with Abby Hasbury. Hey, parents. I'm here now with licensed marriage family therapist associate, Abby Hasbury. Abby's a therapist, 
author and educator working with clients in Texas, and she also happens to be a transracial adoptee and a birth mom who's navigated the reunion journey for both of these identities. Hey, Abby. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you here at Project Parenthood to shed some light on the nuances of transracial adoption, particularly when the adoptive parents are white and the adoptee has biological roots in the African diaspora. So I wanted to sort of start with just hearing a little bit more about the work that you do with adoptees and just a little bit about that. So I originally came to career work as a principal and a teacher and all of the things in education. But at some point, I started to kind of work through my professional identity and think about what it meant to be an adoptee in that space. And I found pretty quickly on that adoptees and specifically transracial adoptees really needed someone to talk to to work through identity and all of the things, abandonment, loss, all of the things that are just kind of not talked about. And so in looking for therapists for people that I met and even for myself, um, I quickly realized that there were not many Black therapists who were um, adoption informed and even more specifically that were either adoptees or birth parents. And so I decided to go back to school and become that. And so recently here, I've, I've started working as a therapist and I work primarily with adoptees. I have a couple adoptive parents, but mostly with adoptees, working through all of the things that we need to, to work through in life, but also all the things that are impacted specifically based on their adoption status. You know, one of the things you just said, you know, the things that we don't talk about, right? Like the loss and those things that we don't talk about. I think in my own practice, that's what comes up so much in my work with adoptees themselves um, and also with the parents, um, adoptive parents and adoptees, just so much loss on both sides, right? And, and then, of course, there's the birth family. Um, and, you know, many of these parents just don't know even how to talk about it, even if they're aware of it. They're, what do we do about this information? How do we bring this up? Do we even bring it up? Is it bad to bring it up? You know, there's a lot of mixed emotions and mixed feelings. So switching gears a little bit, how can white parents help black children with their racial identity development when they just have, you know, that's not their own experience. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out in the conversation you and I had in preparation for this interview, you talked about how adoptees, transracial adoptees, particularly who have white parents, might have to deal with microaggressions and masking in their own homes. You know, how can a child develop a healthy racial identity in those kinds of circumstances? What can a parent do in these situations? I think that one of the things that parents absolutely have to do from the beginning is kind of acknowledge that these things may happen and they may be perpetrators of these things against their kids, completely not intentionally, but it's going to happen as part of the kind of indoctrination into our society. We have all been raised in American society where a lot of unpleasantness happens. And that's not a thing that anyone can dodge and avoid. It just is part of, of growing up in our society. And so accepting that you may at some point do something that is inappropriate or harmful to your child, and then moving forward from that is, is the first step. They, just acknowledging, and even in parenting in general, whether it be just as a parent of your own biological same race kiddo, we do things that can be harmful to our kids and acknowledging that and, and acknowledging that that may happen and that there is repair to make is really that first step just in parenting in general. 
I think that it makes it harder when it's racial and this microaggressions and all of those things, because these are things that we're taught to like hush and not talk about. We don't want to talk about these things. But if you're going to adopt a child of a different race, it's something that you have to understand and just agree to be upfront with and to name the thing in the room. Because just because you don't name it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Just because you don't bring it up to your kid, it doesn't mean they're not already thinking about it and processing it. And so naming it, being aware that it's going to be going to happen, accepting that there's just no perfect way to parent a child, regardless of how that child enters your family, and being okay with the fact that you're going to have to make repair. Um, I think that's one of the things that um, I've, I saw done really well with my own mother, um, and not necessarily her ability to accept her own <laughs> mistakes, but her ability to prepare me for the world and to say like, these things are going to happen and you're going to see these things. And when they happen, I'm here to talk to you, to you about them. Um, and that's one thing is, is providing a safe space where when your child encounters these things, these microaggressions, these covert and, and, you know, overt acts of racism, that they have a place to go. Um, if you think of a black child in a black home who experiences something outside of the house, they have a safe place at home to go to say this thing happened. And there are people in her, their home who have been like, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I got that. I've, I've had that experience. When you're a transracial adoptee and you have this thing happen outside of your home and you come home, it's not necessarily a safe space because your parents don't have that, haven't had that experience and can't necessarily relate to that thing that happens. So it's really important that you provide open conversation about things that are going to happen, accepting your child's reality and saying, if you know this is how you perceived it happening, then I believe you and not trying to make them feel better and saying, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean that because if your child believes they meant it, then your child believes they meant it. And that's where you need to start. Um, I think that that's super important too, that parents just accept your child's reality because it's a reality that you just aren't going to necessarily understand or relate to. I think that's a really good point. That that last point you made there about believing your child. I've worked with a host of transracial adoptee teens who have gone through many kinds of microaggressive moments. And when you talk about a child coming home and saying, you know, this is an experience I had and getting the response, I don't believe you, or maybe you're misunderstanding. I mean, the word I want to put on that is gaslighting. Certainly, as you said before, I don't think that's necessarily a parent's intention. I think more the intention is to relieve my child of this distress they are feeling. And if and if these words that I can say can do that, then I'm going to do that. Sometimes those words that you are hope hope are doing that thing are actually doing something more harmful. Yeah. And, and what you're teaching your child to do is to not listen to that feeling inside of them that something is wrong. And so when they go out and there's a microaggression, whether it's something as simple that happens all the time where someone's touching their hair or making comment about their hair and it doesn't feel right in their stomach, like it doesn't feel right that this person is putting their hands on me and petting me in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable and they come home and say that and you say, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it. They just appreciated your hair. What you're teaching them to do is to not listen to that feeling in their gut and to not listen to their own, you know, survival instincts um, in situations like that. And that's not at all the intent of the parent, but it's what is learned by the kiddo when you do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And can you talk a little bit about masking too? When we talk about masking, I know that you and I know what we're talking about, but just for the audience, can you talk a little bit more about what that might be like for a transracial ad adoptee? Yeah. So if you think about it in a professional identity of a Black person who goes to work 
and has a specific identity that they put on when they're at work. And it's where they're speaking proper English and they're, um, and proper is in quote fingers for that, um, standard English, standard English. And they are um, wearing their hair in certain ways and maybe just doing speaking in manners that are more appropriate to the job environment that they are in, but not what they are accustomed to in their own community. And this can be any any person of color, people from other countries as well, any culture that's outside of standard white American culture. That kind of is that masking. But when you think of a transracial adoptee, they are doing that often in their own home as well. So it's not just going out into another space and putting on this like identity to be speaking in standard English in a, a white kind of societal expectation. It's doing that in the place where you're supposed to feel the most safe and the most comfortable in your own home. So that is problematic in, in many ways um, because it makes a child feel like there isn't a space where they can be 100% themselves and be comfortable and be authentic because they are learning about their own race and their own culture from television, from their friends, from other racial mirrors who they may be living with. And so, and then to have to take that off at home is, is problematic and, and exhausting. One of the things that I'm seeing more and more with my adult adoptee clients is a, a kind of pushback or putting up boundaries from their, their parents, their, their white adoptive parents, because of that kind of weathering, where they just now need to have this boundary um, and not have to be someone other than their authentic self that they've now, you know, learned what their identity is and decided that this is who they are. And they don't feel like they can be that way 100% around their adoptive family. Right. Just in a self-preservation way, just in a way to try to preserve some, some authenticity and also just your well-being, your emotional well-being. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. So how can white parents help their black child prepare, like, as you said, as your mother did, prepare for the racism and microaggressions and bias and just white supremacy in the world that they're going to encounter outside of home? Yeah. So calling a spade a spade when you see it and you, you talk about it and not don't act like you didn't see it. Um, one of the stories that I often tell my clients and people is that when I was in middle school, I was invited to a country club by um, a white friend to go swim. And the night before we were going, my mom got a phone call from her mom 
And when she got off the phone, she said, you know, this is what happened. You're not allowed to go swimming at the country club because the country club does not allow African-Americans in the club. And she said to me that as long as the parents still believed it was okay to be members of this club, I was not allowed to go to that house again and play but that my friend was allowed to come to our house anytime because, you know, it wasn't something that she did as a child, but it's a choice that her parents made. And as long as they were continuing to be okay with that choice, she didn't feel comfortable that that house was safe for me. And I think I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And so having a conversation where I understood what was happening, I also felt supported by my mom. Um, And I also was able to kind of put the blame where the blame was. It wasn't my friend's fault. It wasn't anyone's fault other than the country club. And then my friend's parents were making a choice to be okay with that. And that choice wasn't okay with our family. And so that's what I mean by kind of calling a spade a spade. My mom could have easily said, oh, you know, if this is canceled, I'm sorry. You know, they are not going. She could have made up a story. She could have done anything. But by being truthful and honest with me, she gave me a perspective as a 10-year-old to understand that good people make bad decisions, one. Um, that the world isn't always going to be kind and nice to me. And and that was kind of two, but that also I had a choice to still be loving and kind to people, regardless of what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to, what really stands out from that story that you're telling is also how your mother, she made this choice to say like, these aren't humans that I want in my child's life. These people aren't safe for her. If they're going to co-sign that kind of, like that kind of ideology, they're not safe for her. And I'm going to tell my daughter why I think that they are not safe for her. Because there are a lot of times that we as parents make those kinds of safety decisions for our kids, but don't actually have a conversation with them about it, why we made it. And so I think it's really important that your mom was open with you about that, um, about her decision uh, to prioritize your safety. And I also think it is wildly compassionate of her to not uh, have their daughter, uh, their child, like pay for the the bad decisions of their parents, the unfortunate decisions. Yeah. And what a great lesson for me, because it also told me now as an adult that I can make the choice to say that this space isn't comfortable for me and I I don't want to be in it. And it has nothing to do with other people in that space. But it's just my choice to say like, yeah, I, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm not going to be in this space and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And that your safety matters. Your mom also taught yes. you in that moment that your safety, your emotional safety, like is an important thing and it is of value and I am going to protect it and you have the right to protect it too. As we're sort of talking about white parents understanding the impact you know, that the world can have on their black child, can you help other white parents understand that what we're talking about, that weathering that happens for Black transracial, for all Black people, really, but for a transracial adoptee who, as you mentioned before, may not have inside of their other home, other Black people to see or understand their experience and like the hypervigilance and having to assimilate and all of those things, you know, like how does that affect development, you know, and as a child is growing up? It's a lot. It is a lot. And and you mentioned hypervigilance, and that's exactly kind of what it is. You're, you're always on a swivel. You don't know where you fit because you don't fit in 100% in, the, in white society because you're not white. But you also have learned that you don't fit in in whatever your culture of origin is because you don't have that cultural background. You don't have the same language. You don't have that, that shared experience. It leads to a place where you're always questioning do I belong in this space? And if I belong in this space, how do I show up in this space? So there's a lot of learning to kind of change who you are to fit in a space until um, until you're able to feel really secure in your identity and, and who as a child or and especially as a teenager feels secure in their identity. 
it's just not a thing that, that happens. And so on top of having the normal kind of 13, 14, 50 year old things where you just are kind of, you know, don't feel comfortable and don't know who you are, you really don't feel comfortable and know who you are or where you fit in or where you're safe. And then dealing with friends in that environment as well as hard because they don't know where you fit in and, and where who you are. Um, and so, yeah, it, there's a lot of just trying to figure out who you are in spaces where you're not necessarily feeling welcome um, and where there isn't space for you. Um, mm-hmm. There is an identity for you. Parents can really help by making sure that kids have racial mirrors from the beginning so that you do have that shared culture. If my parents had had some racial mirrors for me when I was an infant on through, if they had had black friends who they were really friends with who are part of my life, then I would have some of that shared culture and that shared experience just from, from being with them in, in that environment. In addition, if I had known any other adoptees in my life, then I would have a space and an identity as an adoptee, which is something that I didn't really have until, until I was an adult, um, was even understanding kind of the adoptee experience. So making sure that that is also part of that experience, whether they are same race adoptees, different race, whatever, it doesn't matter that adoptee experience and identity is one that um, adoptees should explore and be exposed to as well. One of the things that came to my mind as you were speaking was that sort of like umbrella of whiteness, right? That sort of goes with you when you are with your family, when you are a different race than your white family. When you're with them, that sort of like covers you as well, you know? But then when you're not standing with them, the rest of the world is just seeing you as a black person. And in maybe your own internal self, you're not, as you just described, maybe not as aligned with that as maybe you will go on to be later in your life, it can feel very confusing. Like, who am I in this moment? These people are seeing me this way. I might be feeling a different way. How do you manage that like dichotomy when you were younger? Like if if there's a teenager listening right now, right? (laughs) You know, what could be some words of wisdom for them? I think that words of wisdom for me is there's there's no one way of being anything. And so just showing up in the space as you are is enough. And I know that as a teenager, it often does not feel like it's enough. And you just have to continue to tell yourself that I am enough the way that I am. That is actually a lesson that I learned earlier than most teenagers did. And I'm not sure why or how I haven't kind of unpacked where that came from. But I was okay with the fact that there was a different way of being Black when I was 15 years old. I was aware that I had privileges that other, my my Black friends in my community did not have. And with that awareness, somehow I developed an idea, like a a belief, uh, understanding that I had, did have some responsibility. And I think that I found that mostly in school. So from going from eighth to ninth grade, I went from private school to public school. And in doing so, My mom went in and advocated and said I needed to be in all of the highest classes because I had had this like really rigorous education and 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 really did need to be in those classes. And I was excited about going to school where there were a lot more kids who looked like me because there were none at my private school. But what I found was that in those classes, I was still the only one and something in me understood that there was some inequity and some something that wasn't okay in all of that. And I felt a responsibility and some sort of, I don't know, I, I felt like it was a responsibility of me later on to kind of go back and fix that, which is why I ended up going into education. But I understood that my friends were just as smart as I, as I was, if not more intelligent than I was, many of them. 
but they weren't afforded the opportunity to be in the classes that I was in. And it was because of my adoption status and that umbrella of whiteness that you talked about. And that was hard. It was really hard to, to live with, to navigate, to understand, to process. It was hard to navigate my own identity to say, like, there's more than one way of being Black. However, my way of being becoming Black included an umbrella of whiteness that other people don't have. It inc- included a privilege that a lot of my friends didn't have. And, and it, that was difficult to navigate and to understand and to be okay with. I'm thinking about that uh, from all the clients I've worked with who are adults, who are teenagers, who may not be adoptees, but may be Black people who were raised in predominantly white spaces who have a similar feeling. But I think that that's amazing that you were able to from a young age, like put all of those pieces together. And so moving again back to parenting, you know, how can white parents validate their child's lived experience, right? Like, so when your child does come home and say, you know, I had this upsetting experience. And if you are a parent who like, I I just have no idea, like something like this has never happened to me. I've never had to deal with anything like that, but I want to be helpful in my child's direction. Like what is something that a white parent can do to be helpful in those situations. Yeah. So, and I, I would say not just white parents, but parents in general, there's um, a three pronged question that I like teaching parents to ask their kids. When your kiddo comes home with an experience and says, this thing happened to me, you ask, do you want advice? Do you want me to just listen? Or do you want me to solve your problem? Like those, those three things, one, which one of those three, three things am I going into this with my listening ears on? Um, I think that starting with that is super helpful. So your kiddo comes home and has had this experience that they are know you can't relate to, and maybe they just want you to listen. Usually they'll just want you to listen, if, especially if a kid knows that you can't relate to it. They just want you to listen. And so you go in and you just listen. You just say, I understand. You may ask questions for clarity, for clarification. Ask, how did that make you feel? Ask, you know, you know what do you want to do next? Those are the things that you ask when you're just listening. Um, when you're giving your advice, you say, how, can, you know, how do you want me to help you through this? Like, what, what questions do you need to ask for me? How, you know, what, what is the, you know, what is my role in giving you advice in this? Like, what do you need from me? And if you're there to offer solutions, you say, okay, how can I help you? Um, and those are the three ways to kind of go through that, that navigate that space of, of, of circumstances and situations that you may not understand and still show up for your kid in the best way that you can. The other thing is to also see if, you know, is there someone else that you would want to talk to about this? Is there someone that I can put you in touch with, someone in your village who might be the next person that you share this with? Or I say, you know, I don't relate to this, but know who would? Auntie so-and-so, like this person that you already have in their village who they already know, who has shared experiences. Then you say, you know, I think you should talk to him or her about this. Those would be my kind of words of wisdom for parents. Um, But in order to do that, you have to have the village solid from day one. Absolutely. One of the things I think is great about asking those three three questions is because a lot of people that I get in my practice are not the like non-validating type. They're more the like, I got to fix every single problem. Like immediately, like as soon as I hear of something, I got to start fixing everything. And that in and of itself can sometimes be invalidating to a person when they're coming to you because they're trying to maybe get comfort or just have someone listen to them. So it's really just so lovely to give someone a menu like that of like, here are your choices, right? And so 
you can, first of all, like maybe your child doesn't realize those choices are there, A, and then B, like it's giving them a way of getting their need met in the moment. Like, okay, what do I actually need right now? I can choose from one of those three things, four things as you know, when you also offer an outside voice, you know, maybe there's someone else you'd like to speak to about this. Um, and I really like asking that question just in a general way, you know, asking the child, how would you like me to help? What would you like me to do? Right? I mean, I think you'd be surprised about how many, you know, just biological families that I deal with where the child is like, this thing happened. And then before I could even get the words out of my mouth, my mom had like marched to school to like talk to yes. every human being possible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like mortified, right? Like, so it's like, does your child want you to talk to the teacher? Do they want you to intervene on their behalf? Or is that about you and your own anxiety that you, um, is that really what your child needs from you? It's a really good plan to just sort of ask how, how can I help you? What help do you need? As we're getting closer to the end of our time together, I wanted to find out from you, you know, through all the things that we've discussed, you know, one of the things that also came up for me in the chat we had before was about centering adoptees, right? You use that term, that idea of really centering their experience. And I was wondering if you could tell me about some ways that unintentionally parents fail to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So centering the adoptee and adoption narrative means putting their story, their story, their perspective as the center. And so even when you're thinking about the adoption narrative of how a child came to the family, it starts with the parents coming and making the decision to have a kiddo. Um, and centering the adoptee means that you're talking about the loss that happened to the child before they even got to your family. Um, and so when you start with a, a thinking about starting the story with loss, and I'll just start with my own story. My parents told me a story about how they decided to adopt because they weren't able to have um, a fourth child and really wanted to have one. And so my adoption start story started with them and their decision and their need. And it didn't start with the facts that I was relinquished by my mom and that there was a loss and that there, you know, there were three months of my life when I was in foster care that I have no idea who had me or where I was. And centering my adoption story around that would have been a completely different way for me to understand some of the things that I felt. So when I felt like I was um, unable to kind of connect, when I felt like, you know, I was sad at times, centering that part of it um, really changes it. And if you think about the things you see, like in social media about like gotcha days and parents celebrating and putting all over the media this day that they sign and have their kid, if you're centering the adoptee, you're starting with that loss. And so that day when you sign and you are now like really severing that relationship and, and severing that tie to the biological family, it no longer becomes like a huge like, yay, like celebration. It's, it's more of kind of a somber moment where, you know, we are so happy to have you, but we are acknowledging that there is some sort of loss. Um, and so just even thinking just from that first point and centering adoptees in their story and deciding like, do we want to celebrate that gotcha day? Do you even want to celebrate your birthday? A lot of adoptees don't feel comfortable celebrating their birthday because it's not necessarily a day that um, that's full of joy or, or happiness for them. And so understanding and giving them choices as they're getting older and kind of identifying as an adoptee is really centering them in, in adoption. And it also means that adoptive parents don't share the adoptee's story on social media with their friends, that the things that happened before you got your child is not yours to share. That's their story. 
And so that that's also a huge part of it is honoring that story and what is theirs and, and not sharing and oversharing those things as well. You talked about the trauma piece, the loss, right? And I just wanted you to sort of talk a little bit more about the trauma piece, right? The things that don't get talked about, as you said. What are some of those things that all adoptive parents of all the, all the stripes, right? Like, how can they be talking to or making room for that loss piece, that trauma piece? So I think that one of the things that parents do is they often say things like, you know, your mother loved you so much that she made this choice for you. And I, I, I honestly think that that's not the right thing to say. That's centering it around the birth mother's experience and not centering it around the adoptee's experience. Centering it around the adoptee's experience would mean saying, I know that you must miss her. Even if you don't remember her, there's parts of you that miss her. It's okay to think about her. Um, it's okay to wonder what she's thinking if she's thinking about you on your birthday. And, and you know, I hope that she is. So that those kinds of things really, the things that kids are thinking already, but parents don't feel comfortable saying is again, calling it what it is and, and acknowledging those things is real. That's really, really important. Just acknowledging that there is this loss, acknowledging that, you know, you're missing possibly language, culture, foods, all of those things and saying, you know, how does that feel? Like, how can I help you to try to incorporate that in your life? Is that something you're missing? Have you thought about it? Just asking questions and then acknowledging that it may be an experience that they are having um, is really important for parents to do. And, you know, as you're speaking, I'm realizing for so many of the adoptive families that I've worked with, fully half of them have had like the the biological parent, the mother. There's been some trauma in like maybe even becoming pregnant or there was potentially, you know, the, the mother had like very serious mental illness or very serious drug use or some kind of very serious trauma that she was dealing with at the time of the birth. And a lot of the adoptive parents are then very anxious. Like, when do I tell them? Do I tell them? Do they need to know? How do I tell them? Is it more traumatic for them to know? So I'm wondering how, what's a good way for parents to manage that kind of situation? So that's the kid's story and it's their information. And so they, they deserve to know the story in age appropriate bits. So you tell them from the beginning, the story isn't she loved you so much. The story is, you know, your, your birth mother was going through trauma and wasn't able to keep you in this moment. And then when they're older, you tell them a little bit more about the trauma, but it is their story. And it's that when you think about biological kids, they are, they are afforded the opportunity to any information that they can, they have. They know their parents, they have their birth certificates, they know the situation, they have pictures of their parents being pregnant. Um, and so adoptees don't get that privilege. And so as much of that privilege that adoptive parent can get, the better that they can give to their child. The other thing, though, that adoptive parents really should do is also understand that there is some coercion often in the adoption industry for birth parents. And so acknowledging that, too, and kind of the part that they play, just like me acknowledging that, you know, Part of my identity gave me some privilege that other people who look like me might not have. I think that adoptive parents need to kind of acknowledge that their privilege and their identity has played a part in even receiving the child that they have and that there's a possibility that that's part of their child's story too. And so painting a story that is full of, of brightness and love and, and choices is not necessarily fair because it's often not true. And, you know, what you're saying right now about the privilege of even just knowing anything about the, the first days of your life, right? And so not knowing who your parent is 
when your parents know who that person is, they have this information, and they're sort of gatekeeping this information, right? Like imagining that, you know, you can't really handle it, you're not going to be able to deal with it. And then I wonder, you know, for those children who maybe find out when they're, I don't know, 18, all of this information about themselves, I I can only imagine how confusing and potentially feeling betrayed, like this is information you you've been withholding, um, that could have been really important for me to know. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost a violation of trust. My mother talks about how the agency was willing to give her more information, but she was so excited to get me that she just did it. And so like that to me is is frustrating. So even thinking like uh, centering the adoptee in the in the story in the process, she didn't think about what I would need or what I might want to know, or the fact that I should have some sort of access to this information. It was, she was getting the child. She wanted to go home. She wanted to start taking care of me. And so she did not collect the information that she could have done. So as we're coming to the end, there's, uh, I'm wondering if there are any things that you feel that are sort of ideas being held in the lar- in larger society that are myths that could be sort of debunked about transracial adoption. I think the the biggest myth is that Black families don't adopt. And so that's why we need um, transracial adoption. And so I want to debunk that. They do. It's a thing. (laughs) There are definitely same-race adoptions with adoptees who are adopted by Black families. And so that's, I think, the number one myth is that Black people don't adopt. And that's why this happens. But it's not true. It's just that white babies are more desired and adoption coercion happens for with women who are more in crisis, so women who are in poverty. And in our society, that is usually women of color. And I guess I want to challenge parents out there to say, like, what can I do differently in order to not make this a thing? And even in my own experience, and I guess I'll leave with that, when I, I am a birth mother, which you said in the beginning, and as I look back on my story as a birth mother, had anyone offered me any option at 17 years old to keep my child, I would have done it. But that wasn't a thing because because babies are wanted. And so that's part of that adoption coercion is that people did not say this is the path that you can take and do it. And so I I will challenge people to say, like, how can I support women who are considering giving up a kid, but specifically women of color and women who are um, situations where they just need a little support? You made a comment during our our chat earlier, you know, you were talking about the money that's involved in private adoptions. And that same amount of money, like that someone is paying to acquire a child. I mean, what if that 17 year old could have that same money you're paying, maybe they could keep their child. Right. And and that's a huge, that was like, a like a whole thing opened up in my mind, right? Like, it was just like, mind blown like that's it's so simple but so like something that nobody's talking about or thinking about like that to like divert those funds in a different way could have a completely different outcome right and i also wanted to sort of think about for families who might be listening who are in an infertility situation or who have been considering adoption who haven't done it yet they're just in like the reflective stage but what would you say to someone who is in that reflective stage and thinking about adoption? I would say do your work, get go to therapy, figure through all the options, do your own healing first, because if you're often if you're in a situation where you're considering adoption, it's because there's some sort of loss of an ideal of a child that you biologically were going to have. And so instead of rushing to adoption, do that work first in that healing so that you can show up 
in, in the life of a child. I would also say consider adopting kids that aren't infant infant adoptees as well. So kiddos who, who definitely do not have support, family structures, all of those things who really need you as well. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's such, that's such an important point. There's so many children who are older than infancy who need so much love and so much support. So thank you so much, Abby, for for being here and and sharing this information. Um, As I told you before we started recording, I've been wanting so much to have this conversation for so long. I've worked with so many transracially adoptive families and, and kids, and I've always wanted to be able to speak to someone about this who has a therapy background, right? And um, not solely just personal experience, but also some like mental health experience as well. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I hope that's helpful. You can learn more about Abby Hasbury's work at www.greenhouseindy.com slash Abby Hasbury. That's www.greenhouseindy.com slash Abby Hasbury, A-B-B-Y dash H-A-S-B-E-R-R-Y. And follow her on Instagram at Dear Abby, D.E.A.R. underscore A-B-B-Y. You can learn more about my work with parents at www.brooklynparenttherapy.com and follow me on Instagram at BKParents. That's B-K-P-A-R-E-N-T-S. If you have more questions about transracial adoption or any other parenting questions or stories, leave me a message at 646-926-3243 and be sure to let me know if it's okay to use your voice on the show. or send an email to parenthood at quickanddirtytips.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Project Parenthood on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Catch you next week. Project Parenthood is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Dan Firebend with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And our intern is Cameron Lacey. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.